In this episode of Lawrence Talks, philosopher Polo Camacho explores the intimate relationship journalists have with the craft and the stories they tell. Although many news consumers hold low opinions of journalists and the media generally, few know what actually goes on behind the scenes, inside the newsroom, inside the minds and methods of journalists. In order to provide a multifaceted view of the news and how it's produced, we sit down with five local journalists so that for once, we get their side of the news. Our guests today are Silisa Calacal of The Beacon, Mary Sanchez, formerly of the KC Star, Monique Luisi, University of Missouri professor, Andrea Tudhope, KCR reporter and producer, and Vicky Diaz Camacho, KCPT Flatland reporter and co-host of the Filter podcast. Lawrence Talks is brought to you in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, KU Philosophy Department, and IDRH. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. right off the first question we want to ask everyone is a sort of a general question is what made you want to go into the practice of journalism was there a moment was there this idea was there uh anything in particular that prompted that initial move to want to do journalism i'll start then um so Growing up in the D.C. metropolitan area, you kind of think that D.C. is the center of the universe. And I'm so glad I moved to the Midwest because I found out how wrong I was. But just growing up in the Beltway area and always just seeing news and being interested in it and whether it was domestic or um world politics, I thought it was fascinating. In fact, at one point, I thought I was going to be a war reporter. Um, But something really touched me more than that. And it was the personal stories that I saw other people going around, uh, other people experiencing, and um, what my own mother went through as as a single mother who was retired on disability. When I was four years old, I just realized that there are so many stories and people who are underrepresented and um, that and that not only are they not covered in the media, but they're also not spoken to in the media. So this drove my passion to get into journalism and mass media to figure out, especially from a health perspective, how do we better represent these individuals and how do we better connect with these individuals? I've always like kind of been a writer. Um, I like to say I was a writer before I became a journalist. Um, And when I was a kid, I would write like short stories and just never publish them anywhere. Um, So I really liked writing and I really liked storytelling as an art form. Um, And so when I was in high school and I was like, okay, I have to pick a major to go to college. um, I picked journalism because I thought, okay, I can still tell stories. and you know, maybe make a career out of it. But I didn't know too much about journalism. Um, and then I went to school at Ithaca College in upstate New York. Um, and I first started practicing journalism when I joined the student newspaper and I started doing arts and culture coverage, um, human interest stories. And that's where I kind of learned I, where I can marry my love for storytelling with journalism in a way that honors people's stories that 
shines light on problems that are happening um, and kind of just gives people a space to, you know, tell their story, to share their perspective, especially for folks who um, are underrepresented. I went to a school where it was like 70% white people um, and the newspaper reflected that and there wasn't a lot of coverage of what students of color were doing, um, the issues that they were facing. And so as one of like the only reporters of color or editors of color in the newsroom myself, I thought, okay, I want to give a space for students of color to share what they're up to, you know, the problems they're facing and just give them a space to tell their stories. And so that's how I kind of got into journalism. And as I fell more in love with storytelling and, um, and writing, I also found that journalism can be a space to also hold people accountable for their actions. So it can, you know, it's not only a space to, um, you know, shine a light on communities that are often underrepresented in news, but also to make sure that people who have power to make decisions, who have power to change people's lives are actually held accountable to the things that they say and the promises they make to people. I'll follow that because it's kind of similar, except I went to school in a place where I was the majority. So then I moved to the Midwest to finish my degree in journalism. And um, that's where I realized that a lot of voices were missing from the conversation. And um, I felt as though my natural empathy was a way, it was a tool that I could use within my reporting. And so I also did um, arts and culture reporting. I became kind of a senior reporter, did copy editing. So seeing those different modes of journalism and the way that we can work in the newsroom kind of shaped the way that I work today. Um, And that's, you know, using audio, that's using, you know, video, all of that stuff. But what really, really, um, really influenced my decision to get into journalism was probably my childhood. I was an observer. I would look at people, write things down. Um, I was looking at a little diary that I had when I was a kid and I, I would describe people, what they were doing, how they looked, the things I smelled, things like that. So I like telling stories that bring people into those spaces, but then I also like to hear their voices as well and their perspectives. So, so Lisa, We're very similar in that respect. (laughs) Well, I'll follow that because I've just like, this is giving me a flashback to my childhood when I had notebooks full of observations um, of people. Um, And I, like when I was a kid, I I wanted to be a spy. That's how I wanted to like use that skill. Um, That evolved pretty rapidly. But um, yeah, I think also similar to what Salisa was sharing, I do think that I was... um, I was a writer before I knew or, or realized that I wanted to channel that into journalism. But I've also, you know, as long as I can remember, been a sort of painfully empathetic person. And um, it's, I've always also gravitated towards people's stories and uh, on an individual basis. And um, as a younger writer, I wanted to travel and interview people and write. Um, and eventually I came back to the Kansas city area and sort of realized that, um, I could travel through people's individual stories. Like there are so many stories to, to elevate. And I think that my goals as a journalist have, have, um, evolved over time, but I definitely have gravitated towards the undercovered, underrepresented, uh, uh, stories. And, 
the way that I approach my journalism, I my goal is to be empowering with the stories that I tell and try to center um, the lived center lived experience as expertise and center people's personal experiences and let that kind of guide the stories that I'm able to share. Um, So I try to not, you know, take too much ownership, I think, which is something that when I first started journalism, I I would never have put it that way. Um, But it's, uh, I think that's sort of been a through line, I guess, through, through my experiences with, with writing and journalism. Yeah. I I don't remember ever not wanting to be, it was a reporter originally. And I would, I mean, this many years in, um, I would say now it probably my parents were a big influence and that they were always big readers. I mean, my mom was from a Kansas, small little Kansas, really very poor farmers, frankly, very poor land. Um, But they always, she always talked about how they took newspapers and, you know, the Emporia Gazette, frankly, with a William Allen White sort of background was, would have been the biggest city near them. And then my father was an immigrant from Mexico city. Um, And so I think just those, he also read and always watched PBS, frankly, I can remember that they always had the news on. So I, I knew I wanted to be a reporter and it was print was always the direction. It was a newspaper reporter. I could have told you that when I was 14. Um, you know, I'm 57 now. So it was that sort of just massive, hardcore focus trajectory of this is what I want to do with my life, which frankly, I can see now is the only reason I got to where I did because I, you know, I had to pay my own way to college. I didn't even know enough to try and go to MU or KU, even though financially I could have gotten full rides. I'd already won national journalism contests at that point. Um, some of it was for sports reporting, frankly, that, I mean, it's just insane. I mean, I've talked to the professors at MU about it. I'm like, I'm the child you missed. Um, But I think because I was just so singularly focused on this is what I want to do, that it just drove everything um, for good and bad. Uh, I was already writing for the star as a freelancer when I was still in college um, because I would come up with stories and they would let me do them. Um, I don't touch you. I don't know that they paid me, (laughs) but you know, I, I mean, I was writing front page stories when I was still in college up at Northwest Missouri state university. Um, so, and then it kind of took off from there. I was lucky in that when I first started at the star, really one of my first main things was I was like, I call it like the JV reporter to Mike Manser, who now works for, um, Gene Peters Baker, but the Kansas City school deseg case was still in the courts at that point. So, you know, we had Kansas City Times. I mean, the le- I don't think now people realize the level and quality and just vast range of really hardcore, well done journalism. It wasn't about self focused stuff. It wasn't, you know, light stuff. It, I mean, it was just so heavy then compared to where things are now, which have to do with, for better and worse, again, um, just so many differences and changes. But I was very, very lucky in the way I was able to first start out and land and really learn from some amazing journalists. Uh That's awesome. And uh, picking up from that, uh, you mentioned the Kansas City Star, and I think that's a good uh, sort of segue into the next topic. So a personal sort of anecdote. Um, 
I maybe about a year ago went to a doctor's office with a friend um, and there was a book there on the history of Kansas City journalism. Yeah. And it was this like old, old book. And uh, I was just flipping through it. I mean, they, they didn't have any other magazines there. And I thought, hey, this is pretty interesting. But the whole book was dedicated to Kansas City journalism and some of the early, early stories that were told. Like this is like pre-Kansas City Star before the Kansas City Star was a Kansas City Star. And for our viewers who don't know what that is, that's like a huge, uh, what is it, um, what a media outlet of in Kansas City, news organization in Kansas City. Um, anyways, and I was flipping through the pages and there was this really interesting story about at the time there being these dirt roads in Kansas City and uh, people complaining because at the time, you know, people would wear these long, long coats, skirts, dresses that would drag through the dirt. And the, the complaints were so huge that someone said, you know, I'm just going to report on this because it's it's crazy that our coats, our pants, our, you know, jackets are strewning across the dirt and getting really, really dirty. And so they reported on that. And I mean, this, I'm not sure how true this story is, but that story ultimately prompted the city to build roads in certain areas. And so I thought that was really interesting because for me, being someone that, you know, isn't a journalist, that kind of gave me a taste of what good journalism might be. But again, I'm not a practicing journalist, right? And so I guess my question to you all is, when you first started doing journalism, did you have this ideal conception of what good journalism amounted to? And did that conception change as you started practicing journalism in the real world? Um, And then finally, does that question make sense to demarcate the good journalism from the bad journalism. So I guess I just want to throw that question out there. You know, I originally started writing columns because there was so much that I felt I couldn't get. And this isn't even a slap to print media or specifically the star, but that I couldn't say about race because I wrote race, um, race, ethnicity, immigration, all that for years. I couldn't get to some deeper levels that I wanted to in, at that point, normal news journalism that was very much, particularly for print, very much related in a, not he said, she said, but here's one side, here's another. And there were so many more nuances about experiences and just real truths about how things are lived and frankly, how complicated some, you know, race and class and immigration, just all of it is so entwined that that's how I started writing columns initially um, for the star. And then I wrote for pointer columns on training journalists, how to write better about race, ethnicity and immigration and class, and then becoming syndicated with Tribune. But frankly, now I'm even shifting more because I see how polarized our country is, how unable people are to think. There is so much, frankly, just horrendous. I don't even call it journalism. It's just there's so much out there that people are inundated with poor information, frankly, um, that I often worry that's too much of opinion writing now is just playing to one voice or the other. And I've even thought, you know, and now as I'm trying to figure out what to do with myself in the, you know, next, um, next phase of my work life, 
I don't know that opinion writing is that helpful sometimes because it loses from what I, it takes away sometimes from what I think drove some of my better journalism. And that was explaining issues, you know, making change, helping people understand things better. So that's just kind of a little bit more of my personal um, of what I felt and seen and changes. Great. Would anybody else like to speak to that? Or Yeah, um, I think uh, it's very interesting. So being on the research side of things, one of the things that really I'm trying to figure out literally as we speak um, is how to reach people. And so my research looks at health mostly and how do we communicate about health and how do audience understand health and things like that. And once upon a time, it seemed like we were on this model where you had an authority figure and you doctor, white coat, usually male, probably white, saying this is the medicine. You get the medicine. It makes you feel better. Trust me. I'm a doctor. But more and more with technology and with inclusion, things look very different. And we also know that not every group is going to respond well to doctors or authority figures. Um, Minority communities who have experienced abuses at the hands of scientists, unfortunately. Um, They may be more trusting of an elder in their family or a religious leader and things like that. So with journalism, well, how do it, when it comes to health, I don't know if there's anything that's perfect. I, I think that it's fluid like the times. And that's, I mean, fortunately, why I'm able to keep a job because I have to keep researching what's, what's on the up and up. But it's, the people are dynamic. Therefore, journalism has to be dynamic. And that, you know, and maybe perhaps also what constitutes good journalism is going to be ultimately responsive to the times. Right. Um, and so that too may also be fluid. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that, uh, statement at all, but. I I was going to say, I mean, I think one of the things that I think sometimes we, especially if you're in a, in a newsroom, if you're a reporter working on on deadlines, um, if you're responding in a newsroom to breaking news on, on a regular basis, you have content to produce every day. I think sometimes we miss opportunities to critique our own work um, and to to bring in also the very valid critiques of the people who consume our work um, and who our work impacts sometimes very directly. Um, and so I think like we were just talking about how sort of these standards might be fluid all the time. I think we need to find a way internally to be more responsive to that fluidity um, and, and, and embrace for it. I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think many um, newsrooms or um, yeah, outlets have, have framework for adjusting like that. Um, And I think there's a lot to critique, you know, I think one thing that I, Uh, think about a lot in my career as a writer, as a journalist, is how am I in the position that I need to be in to make the most impact as an individual? And sometimes I, um, like with stories that we write, um, sometimes 
we could we could spur the pouring of concrete on roads in Kansas City, or sometimes we could just be um, changing the narrative in a slow way, you know, that, that people might not really know is happening, but definitely um, does impact the, um, uh, you know, the narratives that, that as a society, we sort of uh, rely on without knowing it. But um, I think that we just, I think if we took a more critical eye to what we do, I think that we could probably have a better sense of, um, of our impact and what might be good or bad, although I don't really like those terms. But I'm also, just full disclosure, I am a philosopher, but I'm going to keep that out of this conversation. <laughs> uh, for me, um, my, my kind of conception of good, good journalism um, was definitely shaped by this class I took on independent news. And so basically in that class is where I learned like, Oh, independent, like what independent journalism is. Um, and that's where I learned about um, journalists like Amy Goodman, who I look up to at Democracy Now. Um, we talked about Naomi Klein, publications like The Nation, The Intercept, just these publications that kind of arose, you know, independently, um, kind of outside of like having corporate ownership of journalism. And that's where I really that's where I kind of in my head formulated the connection between the business of journalism and then the kind of ethical pursuit and production of journalism and that the two are very connected. Um, and I think a lot of times um, journalists should be a little more critical of that connection, right? Because, you know, when you have mainstream news outlets that, you know, are owned by a corporation and maybe a corporation that isn't even, you know, in the city, like the Kansas City Star is owned by McClatchy, right? McClatchy owns so many other newspapers around the country. You know, their bottom line is journalism as a for-profit entity, right? And when you when you pursue journalism in that way, the coverage that you're going to produce and, you know, put to the public is still going to be tethered to that at the end of the day. And so the way that I see good journalism is journalism that is independent, that doesn't put money first. It's journalism that puts people's stories first, that puts people's problems first, um, and journalism that isn't afraid to make people in authority, you know, angry for criticizing them. I think a lot of times in mainstream outlets, there is kind of this deference to authority, whether that's like the president or the police, um, as we saw kind of this past summer, um, I think a lot of that is guided by, you know, newsrooms don't want to lose money. And I think sometimes they can, the leaders in newsrooms who are responsible for making decisions about what gets aired or what gets published and what doesn't and how they're framed. Um, at the end of the day, they think about the bottom line. And for a lot of outlets, that bottom line is money. And it's really unfortunate because journalism shouldn't be run as a for-profit entity, right? You know, at the end of the day, I see journalism as, you know, a vehicle to, you know, create a more informed public, right? You know, it's informing them, letting people know what's going on in their communities, letting them know things that they wouldn't otherwise know. Yeah. Um, and so that's where, like, my conception of good journalism com comes from at the end of the day. Um, and I think, I think journalists who, it's unfortunate, too, when, you know, you're a reporter and you're kind of, like, at the bottom of the journalism newsroom hierarchy, right? Like, you know, we're a lot of 
you know, we're considered like maybe stars and, you know, our bylines are what gets published. But I think what a lot of people don't know is that we have editors and managers and then managers on top of those managers that they're dictating the decisions that ultimately, you know, shape the coverage that we produce. So like as much as we might want to pursue a story, you know, we might find ourselves in a newsroom where somewhere up top might say, no, like, don't do that. Or no, don't say it in that way. Um, and it's unfortunate because it does trickle down and it affects our work and affects our ability to be, I think, truly independent, you know, journalists. And I think that's what a lot of news consumers are looking for um, is journalists who aren't kind of motivated by some sort of other agenda and just want to be and, you know, informants of the pu- informants of the public and kind of the eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah. A couple of things, probably just to point out, um, the star, unfortunately, is not owned by McClatchy anymore. They um, they imploded into bankruptcy. They're actually owned by a hedge fund now. So I would say it's worse. Everyone's a little bit more fearful of what that's going to bring. Um, I mean, I was there through the years when they were owned by Disney, ABC, Knight Ritter, I would say was probably the best era in that they were a massive conglomerate of tons of newspapers, but really, really strong newspapers, strong journalism. I think, you know, what you're referring to is the advent and the growth of the nonprofit news, which is amazing and wonderful in many, many ways, but you're also beholden to funders. And there's, I know a lot, like I know Kelsey really well too, and it's done an amazing job of getting the beacon off the ground. But, you know, how do you ever really become as robust as what the community, frankly, once had? I mean, like I covered Blue Valley when they were still getting 500 extra kindergartners um, on the first day of school every day just because people were moving in that fast. It was incredible. This is when they had one high school. Um, The way that a community used to be blanketed, covered was so massive. And I hear people all the time and say, oh, well, these are the untold stories. I'm like, I wrote that in 1990. You know, it, it, you know, there's this perception. And do I think we got a lot of things wrong? Yeah. Um, but it was heavy, heavy beat reporting where you were just so invested and ingrained in a community. And things were held to power many times. Um, I do know now that I would get some pushback. We would always talk about sacred cows. You know, what was a sacred cow in a community? Um, What didn't get covered? What editor had something? You know, were they too concerned? I would run into this sometimes, frankly, because I covered starting because of AIDS and some pushback with um, gay and lesbian people I saw as basically just another targeted audience. So I ended up covering gay and lesbian issues, even though... Initially, it wasn't under my beat. It was race and ethnicity and minority groups is what they would say then. But just how things would shift. So it, it, yeah, it's fascinating. I do think the growth of nonprofit news is going to be, and the story of that and how it unfolds and how long it can sustain. Because sorry, somebody still needs to pay for it. You know? And I never, ever thought about anything in terms of financial with my work other than trying to get something through an editor a budget passed 
Like when you went to Honduras after Hurricane Mitch, you know, I remember figuring out the budget and, and trying to get them to okay it and writing a bunch of stories to get them interested, them being editors so that they would okay it. So there was that kind of nuance. But I never, until I became syndicated, I never had any idea in my head of a bottom line on what I reported on. I just was trying to cover communities, cover issues, cover people, get it out there, do my job. And to me, that is was a huge strength of journalism because I never, and it, it differentiated me from most of my friends who so much of their job, there was a dollar attached to what they did. How much profit did you turn? I never had to think about that. Never. So anyway, which is kind of what you're speaking to, you know, the joy of what nonprofit can be, um, you know, and that now clicks, you know, and I mean, for-profit journalism, print side, I mean, everyone is hurting. Yeah, it's the advertising model that mm-hmm. things were based on. And for a while, we had such huge profits, like 26% profit margins, which is huge in any business. So there was an arrogance, I think, within print media of leading so much of the conversation and not being reactive to people and times and changes and digital needs and, you know, everything that is occurring now that you guys are just so wonderfully versed in, frankly. And I think... I think there's also more of an emphasis on not necessarily and correct me if I'm wrong, um, all of the fellow journalists on this panel. It's like a public service. Themselves is how I'm seeing it, Um, just like what Mary and I collaborated on just recently, um, a series on police stops. These stories are not new. Um, but we are trying to dig in and see what we can do as journalists to shed a light on these issues and the nuances and context that maybe other people haven't or maybe forgot about. So that's something that I think is happening lately, um, especially with nonprofit newsrooms, because we really care about, well, what did someone forget 20 years ago, you know? And then we like to have those conversations and stir them up again, because that is important. That's great. So far, um, I think we've been having this conversation of what, you know, constitutes good journalism versus, say, a bad journalism or as Mary Sanchez was alluding to, uh, something that isn't even journalism at all. Um, But now I want to delve deeper into the practical elements of achieving these aims. Um, Now, as a philosopher, PhD researcher. Um, I'm basically living in front of my computer most of the time, uh, looking at articles and stuff like that. Um, Even then, however, my work is sort of relies upon other sources, people's experiences. Um, So for example, something that I've done in my research is sort of complicate this inherent genetic determinism that uh, can be found in things like, you know, the media, right? So when you read an article that says, oh, we found the gene for arthritis, right? 
um, those sorts of claims, a lot of what I do is sort of uh, meant to complicate those ideas, right? And so I draw from different sources, uh, researchers, et cetera. In journalism, something that I became acquainted with is the idea that a lot of the research draws on people's experiences. And so that involves bringing others into the fold, you know, so reaching out, talking to people, um, having conversations with uh, people outside of your area of, uh, say, expertise or discipline. Now, the question I want to ask you all is in achieving these aims, have there ever been any issues with regards to sources? So the examples that I'm thinking about have to do with where you're reporting on something, but then maybe the source that you're using to report on this issue, which may bring about this great good in the community, uh, may be in danger, right? Maybe if their name gets out or if people find out who they are, uh, their communities might say frown upon the fact that they even contributed to this project. And so there I, I have in mind this dilemma where you're trying to achieve this aim, but then there may be a trade-off, right? Um, and you have to make, maybe you have to make that apparent to the source that you're using for the story. Um, a, have you ever encountered this sort of ethical dilemma or issue in achieving these aims as journalists and B, how would you handle something like that? Yeah, I don't want to speak to you. It's like, I, that's, that's ethics in journalism. I mean, there's tons of it, whether you're dealing with, you know, someone who's undocumented and particularly when they're undocumented. I mean, my Spanish is not that great, but when it's even say they're speaking, their dominant language is an indigenous one that I'm completely clueless about, say they're from Guatemala. Um, or another country that I really have no knowledge of there. You know, how do you make them understand? I'm going to only identify you to this point and to have had the clearance from an editor ahead of time of what is going to be okay. I mean, frankly, 20 minutes before we got on, I had a conversation about some confidentiality with a nurse for a story I'm doing because it gets into patient confidentiality and issues with an administration that, okay, what is the goal here? And we talked through some things that she told me that I will not include, but that I need to understand and know. There's that. I mean, I see things going on in town right now, knowing personalities and leaderships and who is pushing what issue and why and who they're trying to draw into the fold. I do a lot on policing. There's a lot going on right now with that. You know, why do some people want Rick Smith gone? What do they think that's going to accomplish? Local control, same issue. It is always there. And that is the power of journalism. And I think what any good journalist needs to have is a deep, deep respect for how badly they could screw things up for people or make things better. And why are you there? And how are you using it? And how could things inadvertently even go really wrong? And I mean, I think I've always been, frankly, probably far more hesitant um, than some other journalists. You know, I've sat on things. I can think now, I mean, I knew for quite a while before we actually published it where the um, separated children were in this area. 
And my big concern, I've said this publicly before, so, you know, my big concern in working with the lady that ran the agency um, where they were at was exactly what had happened. You know, it was a unsecured location, kind of almost like a camp setting. And she knew that she was worried about people pouring in there trying to save the children. And sure as hell, it happened. You know, we still needed to run the story. But I had some deep, deep concerns of causing more problems by doing so. And I think you're, whenever, I mean, even a story that can seem, you know, pretty, for lack of a better term, low level, easy beginning reporter stuff can go terribly wrong. If you're not just really attuned to all aspects of impact that can occur by you holding back, by you reporting it, by you not getting it right. Um, there's just a lot involved. And frankly, that is ethics. It really is. One thing that um, I think sometimes, uh, I, I think a, a step that sometimes journalists skip is um, making sure that the source knows the consequences of their what they disclose. Um, when you're on a, a big story and someone gives you a bunch of information and you're like, this is it. This is a huge story. I have to tell it. Um, I think some journalists like in that moment have an ethical decision to make. And because sometimes if, if someone has never spoken to the press before, um, you know, if they've never told this story before, they might not fully understand um, what it means to be on, even be on the record. And I just think sometimes like journalists skip those steps. Um, and when we've been talking a lot about like how to, uh, how to empower people with our work. And I think that is a crucial step in, in uh, making sure we're being ethical about our, our journalism um, and finding the right ways to tell these really big stories that might put people in danger. Um, I also think um, just from my own experience, like I've, I've done a lot of stories on um, gun violence and um, that was for me when I, when I was working on those stories, which was I, kind of over the course of two years, um, I made a lot of decisions um, and, and did not, um, I, I spoke to a lot of sources on background only. Um, I specifically, when I, um, when I told a story about um, teen violence in Kansas City, Kansas, it was the story that I was telling was about ongoing retaliation. And that was really complicated because I had to keep in mind that this was an important story to tell. Young, five young people had been killed and there were more threats of violence present um, that were ongoing. Um, and a lot of local media wasn't really touching that story. Um, and these families were grieving and it was horrible, you know, but I also had to find a way to do it without um, harming the community. And also without, um, especially since these were, I mean, these were young uh, victims and young perpetrators, so complicated. Um, and I think even thinking back on it now, I'm sure there are a million different ways I could have done it differently, but my number one goal really was to protect the people that I was talking to and try in, in that to also complicate the existing narratives. And at that time, there was a lot of space for me to cover because, like I said, local media wasn't really 
delving into that story. Um, I could talk about that for a long time, <laughs> but I think, I just think there are so many like minute decisions that we're making all the time. Um, sometimes as individuals, you know, like there's, there's also sometimes not time that we get to talk with our editors or our boss's boss or other reporters. Um, I do think that kind of collaboration can be really useful. Um, but then there's another question there too, about like when you make a promise to your sources and you're protecting them, you kind of have to keep some information to yourself. Um, even within your own workspace, so. I think um, from a research perspective, um, definitely some of the things I'm hearing here in the practitioner perspective ring true. I mean, the research institutions benefit from the institutional review board that we have to go through the process to make sure our research protects our subjects. But the truth of the matter is that we are only as good as our research practices and committees are um, current. So like social media is a big thing, for example, like people just post all this information to social media and audiences do not and users do not necessarily know that their information is not private. And then we get into questions about whether or not can we talk about the person who um, posted that they are uh not social distancing during the um, coronavirus pandemic or what was there's this case just yesterday where the nurse um, posted a TikTok about um, how she wasn't, she was um, not in Seattle. She was not um, following the local um, legislation and restrictions and she made a joke about it and she um, is no longer employed. They're not saying whether she was let go or whether she uh, resigned. But then it's like, okay, is it ethical to put that on in the news? Well, some people might argue yes, because we're letting people know that there's a danger. But some people are like, you've just ruined this person's life um, by doing that. And um, is, what is an expectation of privacy anymore in the area of social media? Um, and when we're talking about different countries and, and societies, we don't necessarily know the implications of sharing content from social media onto the news. But even more than that, compensation of journalists. We can talk about ethics of this all day long. You know, some people have referred to um, social media as free content and the internet as a source of free content and we can just outsource our news from these things and not compensate journalists, which is causing a problem with quality and a problem with um, checking um, the veracity and, and, and the, and the, well, quality of the coverage and then whether or not, you know, people should be compensated for, for this content. So ethical issues also, um, we have to consider our audiences, but we also have to consider the providers and the content as well. This leads to, well, this is perfect because we only have about nine minutes left. Uh, um, so one final question I want to ask is whether you all think as practitioners of journalism, whether that's from a research perspective, writer, editor, reporter, do you believe that there is enough of an infrastructure to maintain ethical practices within the newsroom. There are all these power structures that exist within the newsroom. You have uh, different various hierarchies and depending on whether it's 
nonprofit, for-profit, et cetera, those might look different. The power structures may look different. And so I guess my question is whether, uh, you know, in, in, in engaging in journalism and trying to achieve best practices, ethically speaking, do you believe that there's enough of an infrastructure within? I mean, maybe perhaps it's too broad, but in journalistic newsrooms um, to be able to accomplish it. I think it depends on the newsroom. And you're seeing so much change right now. I mean, in local media, frankly, I think all of us are pretty aware there is huge upheaval and changes in leadership patterns and ownership, like was just mentioned earlier, you know, and how that shakes out. Um, I mean, like we used to have an ombudsman role, that that was the only thing at one point that that person did for the star and most major newspapers of that mid-level and above in terms of, they, it used to be circulation, you know, and then you can lie a whole lot about, let's just say how much digital hits you have. Um, so that gets stretched in terms of how big the voice is. Um, anyway, but that was always a person in there and they wielded a lot of power. I mean, frankly, there was one that was just like really well known by older journalists because it could be quite nasty about it. And it became very personal in weird ways, but that's sort of, you know, I mean, copy editors for Christ's sake, a good copy editor is worth their weight in gold, you know, and just different voices and people coming in. And it's like, that gets into like the structure and the culture of a newsroom you know, what is being valued? Are they trying to win awards? Are they trying to get clicks? Are they trying and really understanding different communities? I mean, there's some copy that I read and I can read it as a lifelong Kansas Cityan, as the daughter of an immigrant, as someone who went to school in a rural community for undergrad, you know, from a lot of different perspectives. And I see things that I wouldn't, that I would question, which said, do you realize how offensive that line is to Northwest Missouri right now? Um, or really, are you sure? Did you verify that? Because I'm thinking most poor African-American families, that's not true. You know, it's like different lenses, different voices. And how do you build that in and build the accountability? And, you know, what, what's really driving the journalism, what are you trying to accomplish as an entity? How are people being rewarded? Um, that speaks to, in my opinion, the need to check ourselves. And you're saying a lot of things that have crossed my mind. We don't value the work of copy editors enough. We don't value the fact that we need, you know, POCs at the top and every level of the organization, because if not, we we're missing out on the conversation and shaping these stories in the correct way. Um, there's a desire to be more inclusive and to be more accurate, but so many things are flying under the radar because we don't have enough people and enough voices at the table. So I don't think that the infrastructure exists. I think that we're trying and we're pushing to make it happen. Yeah, I think, oh, sorry, Salisa, go ahead. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, just to kind of reiterate that, um, I, 
I think a lot of newsrooms talk about, you know, wanting to be more inclusive, wanting to produce, you know, fact-based, hard-hitting journalism. And, and that's all well and good and, you know, very idealistic. And we should be doing that. But a lot of newsrooms don't have the infrastructure in place. Um, you know, we were talking about copy editors. Fact-checkers are also so essential to the quality and accuracy of journalism. And most outlets don't have fact checkers anymore. I mean, I, I had to intern as a fact checker at um, The Nation magazine last summer. And I mean, that's all I did is I would fact check, double check with sources. And that's where I learned like, this is really important. And in my head, I was like, why, do, why don't more newsrooms have this you know, check in place to make sure that what you're saying is true um, and to make sure that the way that a reporter is talking about someone's experiences is also true to how they talk about their experiences as well. So and, you know, fact checking isn't just for investigative journalism should also be used for human interest pieces, you know, arts and culture. I mean, you know, there should be a blanket use of fact checkers across the industry. Um, and what's really sad is, you know, during the pandemic and beforehand, local news is really just dwindling um, across the country. Uh, news deserts are growing. There are communities now that they don't have any local newspaper anymore. They don't have a daily publication. Um, some publications went from being daily to just being weekly. Um, and that's really sad because that means that there isn't enough news being produced to inform the community. And when that happens, you have information vacuums. And when you have information vacuums, that's where misinformation can really spread, right? If you don't have enough journalists covering the community, if you don't have enough journalists who look like the community and reflect the community's diversity and who are actually on the ground talking to people, then you have more room for, you know, outlets like Fox News to, to you know, to just spread lies. Um, and so I think, you know, when, when there aren't enough journalists, that's a real danger, I think, to democracy. And I don't think that's really an overstatement at all. I strongly agree with that, that um, especially just journalists who look like the people that we're trying to talk to and trying to, to recover. And this is especially a problem in higher education when we're um, talking about who's um, present. Like um, when I was getting my PhD at KU, Rock Chalk, um, I was, <laughs> I was, uh, the only black doctoral student. Now, granted, it was a new program and they have grown since. But let's just say that I'm used to being the one and only um, person that looks like me in the room having um, gone to school in um, Kansas and South Dakota. So um, that being said, it's interesting when I talk about different things, I remember very vividly talking about HIV AIDS, something that, you know, if you grew up in the DC metro area and you're, you're you see ads all the time to, and news articles about how black women are the fastest growing group, you, you go to South Dakota and it, the culture there is more conservative when it comes to talking about STIs and sexual health, but it's still an issue, but it's just that, you know, they, they don't talk about it. And then it's issues that affect both white people and native Americans greatly. But I can tell you, while I was like the only one of me in the room, there are like no Native Americans. And that's a problem. And so how do you effectively tell the stories of um, First Nations people 
And how do you connect the First Nations people if you don't have them in the room? It's very difficult. And if it's done, it's not done through their lens. So it's really important to make sure that we are having representation in the newsroom, in front of the camera, behind the camera, but also in education and research to connect everyone together. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And I think um, if the original question was, is there currently infrastructure to, I think it was to be be as be ethical as journalists and make good journalism. I think that was your question, Polo. I think no. I think I mean I I don't want to speak for every single media outlet. I really hate when people sort of group media outlets, but I think on the whole, no. The answer is no. I think we need a reimagining of the internal infrastructure. I think one of the issues um, in a lot of media and a lot of newsrooms is that the people in positions of power are. Um, are uh, too white. <laughs> They've been in those positions for too long. We have too many people coming from the same, um, even just like the same neighborhoods, the same life experiences, the same socioeconomic backgrounds, um, the same race, culture, ethnicity. That is a problem. And I think that gets to what Monique was just sharing, gets to what we've been talking about this whole hour. Um, and and unfortunately, there's not a, a really good system for like changing that quickly, which is why I kind of feel like people need to just like step back. I feel like we need to rejigger our our structure, our our hierarchy within newsrooms. I think we need to rethink that. I think people need to. Um, I, I just feel like in these environments, there's a lot that we can say. There's a lot of training that we can do. But if that if that current hierarchy, if that current um, disproportionate, uh, if our leadership, which is disproportionately white male um, in a lot of media, if that doesn't just change, I mean, there's there's only so much I think we can do. Um, and I also think um, one thing that I think about is um, if we're working with our journalism to center the community and sort of be co-creators, which I think some people might not fully buy into that language, but if that's what we want to do, I think we also need to think about the training and experience of our editors. Um, I think about how our editors are, are sitting at desks, which is, you know, I sit at my desk to do my work too, but like if they're not getting out into the community um, and they're not, being exposed to to different people and different experiences, how can I, as a reporter, fully rely on their um, nuance in looking checking my biases? And what happens then if if my editor and I look the same or we come from the same background? I just think there are so many like layers of that um, that with our within our current infrastructure, there's no check for that, you know. Um, and I think that's a real danger. That's great. Um, so we've officially hit, uh, hey, two minutes above the hour mark. That's perfect. Um, I tried so, to talk fast. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I, I think I want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, this has been an amazing discussion, a much needed discussion. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot as a you know PhD researcher at KU. Um, and this is just a really great discussion. So as we sign off, I just want to thank everyone once again. Um, hopefully we can reconnect in some capacity in the future. Yes, thank you so thank much, you. everyone. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Awesome. Well, thank you all uh, and have a great, great rest of the day and week <laughs> and year.
Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks.